a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, tea enthusiast, medievalist, and eager to explore old books with you. Today we are on week four of the eight-part series on Julian of Norwich, and it's a doozy. We're following up on a week talking about suffering with a week of talking about sin. Everyone's favorite word and topic, I'm sure. If you've only encountered Julian a little bit, you've probably heard her famous quote, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is the time. We've come to it at last. It's in chapter 27, and as it turns out, we've only been quoting part of it this whole time. Julian writes, sin is necessary. But all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Chapter 27 Wow! Sin is necessary? This is a pretty big phrase to be left out of this quote. It would look a little less nice on all the mugs and tote bags that we typically would see it on. If all shall be well... What are we dealing with when Julian tells us that sin is an unavoidable part of that situation of wholeness and wellness? Moreover, as Julian herself asks, what then is sin? Julian hears this promise and immediately tackles two huge problems as we see it head on. Sin itself and those who live and die outside of the church. How can such things be well? I really like that Julian doesn't hesitate to bring up these things that trouble her or seem contradictory. She fits right in with the New Testament itself in that way. Books in which you have both references to the fires of hell and promises of the utter efficaciousness and power of the love of God. In response to her concern over those outside the church, Julian asks if she can see hell and purgatory. This request is not granted. Julian is instead asked to have faith in God's promise. Again, 
Julian asks for a particular sight. She wants to see someone's fate in the afterlife, someone whom she loved. Again, she is denied and answered only by the greater promise of God's homeliness and courtesy. These requests may feel a little baffling or strange to you. Julian here participates in a long tradition in visionary texts and seers, many of whom claim to have seen visions of heaven and hell, especially hell, in the late medieval period. As early as the year 700, people claimed to have seen the horrors of hell and the bliss of heaven, especially when deathly ill. This actually is not so distant from us today. It makes me think of visiting Christian bookstores circa maybe 2005, when 30 minutes in hell or 15 minutes in heaven and those types of books were displayed prominently as bestsellers. After recovering, medieval seers seem to have told these visions to encourage themselves and others to live far more righteous lives in hopes of avoiding hell. Such teachings, common in the context of the medieval church, emphasized the fate of the individual soul. They sometimes sidelined the church's earlier focus on Judgment Day as the ultimate trajectory of human history and the consummation of God's salvific work. As do many churches today, let's not just blame our medieval friends here. Julian avoids this potential pitfall. She has no extra biblical teaching to add. Instead, the whole pattern of her work thus far closely follows Philippians 2. It urges humility, follows Christ's obedience and love down to the grave, then rests assured that Jesus' name will be ultimately triumphant. So she remains uncertain about any answers, except she is asked to trust that the Lord is good, courteous, and just. And not just abstractly trust, but trust that He is also so in the particulars of our lives, the good friends lost, the difficult questions of judgment, and so on. So on to her other immediate problem with all shall be well. What can be said about sin? We enter into a treatise on sin in the following chapters, loaded with hidden theological debates. Here's some highlights of Julian's words about sin. Number one, she can't see sin. Chapter 27. Number two, Julian herself will inevitably sin, even after and during her showings themselves. That's chapter 37. Sin will ultimately be no shame, but honor. That's chapter 38. And number four, sin is, quote, the sharpest scourge, a cause of great pain, but also of learning about ourselves and our deep, deep need. That's chapter 39. Some historical context can be useful here to help us work through these difficult thoughts on sin. So back to number one. In chapter 27, Julian writes that she cannot see sin in any of her showings. By not seeing sin, Julian firmly places herself within the orthodoxy of the larger Christian tradition. Theologians like Augustine insisted that sin itself was nothing. Because God created everything and God does not sin, sin could not be a thing. Instead, sin is an absence, a perversion of good rather than its own creation. 
a rejection of God's good creation. You may hear this and feel like it diminishes the damage and power of sin that we witness firsthand all the time, both individual sin and the sin that we see in institutions. But seeing sin in this way doesn't actually diminish it. She writes in chapter 29 that sin is still the greatest harm that ever came into our world and the greatest damage we can wreak upon ourselves. Though sin itself is an absence, perversion, or rejection of love and goodness, it is astoundingly real and devastating in its consequences and how we understand ourselves. For example, consider the sin of adultery. Sex itself is a gift. It binds people together. It creates new life. It gives pleasure and joy. Adultery is a perversion of these gifts, a destructive use of a good created gift. Or how about lying? The spoken word is one of God's greatest creations. Beautiful and powerful, words create communities, impart knowledge, and convey truth. Lying takes that power and twists it to serve other ends. We see the consequences vividly of lies in personal relationships and lately in the ragged, rent social fabric of America right now. But the lies themselves are not substance on their own. They take their power from a real gift used without love in the absence of love. So number two, God tells Julian that she will sin again and she becomes afraid. Afraid of what? She doesn't name her fear specifically, but this is what I imagine. I imagine she feels like we all feel when we've had some kind of life-changing experience. We don't want to go back to our ordinary lives or be unchanged by what has happened to us. We want to believe that we are now different, better, holier. We share Julian's fear, I think. We want to believe that we are more than human after we encounter these radical life-altering moments, but we are still human, still limited, and will still hurt ourselves and others. We are scared of this inevitability. When the Lord tells Julian that she will sin again, she understands that his love for her is steadfast, even in her sin. He knows she doesn't want to sin. Fascinatingly, she notices that there is a part of her that is separate from her sin, that part that doesn't want to sin even when she does sin. She's like Paul in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You can hear Paul's frustration clearly, and it's in line with this fear of Julian's. But the Lord sees Julian as she shall be in heaven. Julian is not her sin, which she finds inexpressibly comforting. Number three, sin will ultimately be no shame, but honor. This one is a little tougher to swallow at first bite. But again, Julian's words can be contextualized within a larger Christian tradition. Let's return to her famous quote in our translation. Sin is necessary, but all will be well and all will be well and every kind of thing will be well. I lightly danced over that word necessary earlier, bringing it up, but uh, quickly moving on. This is a translation choice that isn't exactly what the Middle English says. 
let's juxtapose it with the original Middle English. Sin is behoovely, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Hopefully, one part of the translation really stood out to you. Julian uses the strange word behoovely, which is not the same as necessary. Behoovely actually means something closer to fitting in our contemporary English. The Latin-speaking theologians of Julian's time would have used the Latin word convenience for the same idea. The idea of the fittingness of sin within God's greater working means that God's response to our sin is not a scrambled together plan. God doesn't respond to sin like our government responding in hasty and patched up ways to COVID-19, some of which work well, some of which do not. Don't wear masks, wear masks, quarantine for 14 days, quarantine for 10. We adapt as we go, which is good and necessary. And I'm so thankful that the scientists keep getting better and better data as we fight this deadly disease. But this isn't at all the model of how God responds to our sin. He's not putting together a hastily patched up last minute plan that changes. Oh crap, Grace is jealous of someone. I was going to give her this great gift, but now I'm going to take away this other thing in her life so that she's more grateful. Instead, the church fathers and mothers understood our fall as a, quote, Felix culpa, to use the words of the church's ancient liturgy during Lent and Easter. Felix culpa means happy or fortunate fall. They understood our fall into sin as, paradoxically, a happy fall, because through it we meet Christ, God incarnate. God's incarnation is not a plan B, less suitable and desirable than plan A, don't sin. The behoovliness of sin means that it is not a new, alarming, and infuriating challenge for God to unexpectedly meet in our lives. On the contrary, God is so big, so full of all redemption, that sin itself is no impediment to his vast workings. In fact, it's the opposite. Sin is part of our glorification through Jesus. Julian is, of course, careful to echo Paul here. Don't sin more than. But she wants you to know that your sin is never too big or too shameful for God. God's response is unchanging, steadfast love. His answer to sin is in the person of Jesus. Which brings us to the last uncomfortable point about sin that Julian unfolds. Sin as a purgative scourge in chapter 39. The idea that recognizing our sin helpfully forms and teaches us sits uncomfortably with us modern folk. In contrast, Julian and her peers seem completely unbothered by this notion. By seeing and confessing our sin, we see and confess the ways in which we desperately need God. When we are weak, we recognize our profound need for Jesus. The process of recognizing and repudiating our sin, while painful, helps us get to that point. This was one of the foundations of the medieval penitential system. Penance was considered a sacrament by the medieval church. At the sound of that word penance, many Protestants and even some Catholics shudder and gesture towards the unnecessarily 
guilt and works righteousness mentality of medieval penance. This focus isn't necessarily wrong, but it misses out on some aspects of the sacrament. Penance also theoretically taught you how to recognize the places you're weakest. Everyone sins, but everyone sins differently. Medieval penance entailed distinct steps. Recognition of your sin, contrition for what you've done or left undone, verbal confession of it whenever possible, and satisfaction through prayer, pilgrimage, or public confession, depending on sin and the confessor's advice. Medieval people understood confession as efficacious, truly aiding you to heaven. If the confession was full, truthful, and contrite. Medieval priests often used handbooks, which they would consult to help you confess, depending on your place in life, your gender, and your age. Imagine you're a medieval banker. Greed is probably a particular problem for you. As the priest, I would go to that page and ask you some probing questions to help you recognize where the sin of greed might be taking place in your life. Or you're a teenager. I bet you're struggling with lust. Let's ask those questions and figure that out. What's a temptation for me isn't necessarily one for you. Many times we aren't even able to recognize the places of deep, self-inflicted damage in our lives. I'm certainly not advocating a return to medieval confession and penitential practices, but a regular practice of confession to ourselves, to a friend, to a priest if you're Catholic, or if your church has a time of confession, can help us to begin this self-probing. Recognizing our own sin can help us recognize our need for the body, and more importantly, drive us into Jesus' arms, not out of shame, but as we learn how to reject the myth of our self-sufficiency. Thank you for joining me today. The text of this podcast is on oldbookswithgrace.com if you'd like to see it rather than hear it. Please share with a friend who'd like to hear them as well, or leave a review if you enjoyed it. One last word for us all to meditate on in this next week. Julian ends with how Christ's thirst on the cross all along was for us. He longs for us, even in our sin. And the more we understand that longing, the more we do not underestimate the terrible things that sin can do to us. And simultaneously, we do not underestimate the utter power and efficaciousness of God's love in overcoming sin. These are our two temptations when we consider our shortcomings. We are tempted to devalue ourselves in our sin, either through excusing it and its devastation, or by feeling that it is bigger than God and unmanageable. Neither of these narratives rings true, Julian tells us. Instead, the Lord's words to her echo throughout this chapter. I keep thee full securely. Chapter 40 you are kept full safely. These are good words for us today in 2021, 650 years after Julian first heard them. Mm -hmm.